Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali. I haven't been on the show for the three weeks, uh, and rightfully so because uh, Karen Helf has brought some interesting guests to to the show and Matt Zemek helped facilitate that. But this is the week where Roland Garros should have started, so we have prepared some content for you. Uh, Mert Ertunga, our you know, good old friend, is joining us on the show. Welcome to the show, Mert. Hello, Saqib. Glad to be here again. So let's bring the cat out of the bag. I mean, we're trying to do something not very different. I'm sure a lot of people have done something similar in other sports and even in tennis. Uh, we are going to do time travel this week. And we both uh, want to bring a retro live review of a tournament that was played 28 years ago at Roland Garros, the 91 edition, which was the 100th edition of the French Open, 1991 French Open. We are going to be talking on June 10th or June 11th, it was a Monday, not knowing what the future is. So we will be in that point of time. We'll be reviewing Jim Courier's five-set win over Andre Agassi. And uh, we'll bring a lot of uh, anecdotes, a lot of factual reading, a lot of memory trip because we both had relived that tournament uh, through our various backgrounds. And we'll try to compare notes and give you a unique listening experience. If you're a student of the game, if you remember those days, you'll enjoy it. If you're a new fan uh, who just started watching tennis in the last 15, 20 years, this could be something uh, I hope uh, you can tune in and, and enjoy. So, so sure, go ahead. Mert. Sorry to interrupt you. You, you. Are you are you are you telling me that we're going to do like Star Trek and beam uh, time travel and beam to June tenth, nineteen ninety one? Yeah, something like that. I mean, even though we were both uh, we don't know each other. I mean, I was somewhere in India. Uh, you okay. were, I believe, in the U.S. <laughs> so I'm sure there was going to be some some facts we'll ignore. And uh, we've done a lot of reading. You watch, obviously, a lot more matches in that fortnight than I did. But I was a geek who was following this on news clips, reading newspapers, watching the highlights. And uh, we'll only cover the men's edition uh, in this try. And if uh, this experiment of ours goes well, we'll definitely be touching some of the women's events in the future weeks. So we'll th- this will also be detriment on your feedback. If you like it, please you know send a note of encouragement, even if you don't like it. Let us know. We'll try to improve. So when we go back to that time, Mert, I'm sure you have a lot to unpack. But uh, we don't know who Richard Krychek is, even though he appears in the draw. He hasn't made his name, so we won't mention him. Uh, Thomas Muster was a clay court exponent, but not a clay court giant. So he might get a mention, but he won't get anything like today's fans know that he had won 40-plus titles. Wayne Ferrer and Todd Martin are in the draw. We won't touch them. If we do, there'll be nothing to mention because they haven't made their move. The mm-hmm. center of the universe are Edberg, Becker, Lendl, Agassi, Sampras. These are the five best players. Bruguera is a force on clay. You need to know you can go and check the wiki seedings. John McEnroe is still playing, but I don't think he did anything spectacular in this tournament. He may not get a mention. Pat Cash is back after injuries. Never was the same guy after you know the back injury uh, in you know maybe 1990, so he won't get a mention. But who will get a mention are Jim Courier, Michael Streak, and so many of others who did well. So before we start unpacking this smurd, any disclaimers or any, any, anything you want to add? No, I believe you covered it. Uh, you covered it all. Yeah, I've been waiting for this, uh, this one. This was an idea me and Mert have uh, floated around since COVID started. So here we go. Yeah, we will still sound the same because we are not actors. I mean, I'm trying to go back in time and I will not sound like a teenager. So let's not even fool <laughs> ourselves. And uh, I'm a fully grown man and let's, uh, let's do this rewind. So, Mert, uh, the French Open just ended yesterday. Uh, if I had told you two weeks ago that Jim Courier is going to come out as a winner, 
what what were your what what would have been your thoughts if i floated this idea no i i would not have believed you sakib uh, of course it's not that he was an uh, he was an unknown in fact uh, i wouldn't say that he did not have an outside chance at winning but uh, if you told me that he would be winning i would still say come on sakib you know well, well did, did you have a good time at happy hour uh, last night or you know i would i, I may have made a joke of that kind no i would not i would not have uh, picked carrier to win the tournament yeah even though he won couple of uh, big tournaments not big tournaments but definitely the big one was lipton key biscayne and previous week uh, or previous couple of weeks he had won the tournament in california desert indian wells uh where he got g4 j in 5 uh you know this these two results i believe uh, helped him break into the top 10 he's yes. a voluntary protege probably you can throw more light his relation equation with andre agassi he was the alpha american tennis player he was very young but you know he was talk of the town uh, rebel with the cause uh a rebel with the cause yeah andre agassi so let's talk about these two players and leading up to the french open agassi was favored to do well but courier wasn't i gave some introduction to his path right there what he had done he came in i think the 12th seed but let's talk about the matchup before the final when this happened what were you, what which way were you leaning okay now jim's in the final but uh you know this is again two weeks ago but now you know the result so which way were you leaning on saturday night no on saturday night i was still leaning towards agassi uh and and this is this is not to this is not this is no disrespect to Jim Carrier because Carrier actually does have a win over Agassi in the French Open in 1989 2 years ago and uh he you know he beat him in the round of 32 in four sets and Agassi came off the court in 1989 saying that uh, Carrier is the hardest hitter he's uh, he's played against and and, and he even said something to, to the effect of uh you know Landol has the a very powerful forehand but i believe he has nothing on you know compared to jim carrier's power overall from the baseline and uh, that's i think a quite a remarkable comparison that agassi made there and that was in 1989 two years ago so here we are in 1991 uh, they're playing each other again agassi got his revenge at the french open last year over carrier won in four sets and now they're you know one and one against each other at the french open so to speak although agassi dominated him in other tournaments but uh, but on at the french open they're um one and one 89-90 so now they play again a third year in a row this time in the finals so it's not completely out of the question for carrier to win he has a, he has a chance but uh, agassi still went in the clear favorite especially the way he he played leading up to the finals and i'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more you know but uh but uh, for example with his match against Rossi I'd like to start but we'll we'll do that when we get there but uh, to answer your question no I guess he was still the favorite for me when this draw started uh, two weeks ago was Agassi the man to beat even though you know he had uh, he'd only played uh, he'd only reached two finals in the last two slams you know uh, he didn't play Wimbledon in 90 and he didn't play Australian Open in 91 so Roland Garros and US Open he lost two finals to Andres Gomes and Pete Sampras respectively so coming into this season you know he had already done like you said a uh, couple of good french open results 88 five set loss to Wielander and then last year's four set surprise loss to Gomez uh so Agassi was definitely the man to beat before the tournament started for me along with Bruguera Bruguera was red hot i mean playing some exceptional tennis and i thought he could go all the way uh 
to win win the French. Of course, I was uh, secretly hoping for uh, for Becker, and Becker did pretty decent. We'll get into that. So let's talk about uh, Agassi. You know, he he reached his third successive Grand Slam final. Those are like Lendl type of numbers. I don't even know anyone else has done that in recent times. I mean, that was pretty impressive. Some may say he plays a limited schedule. He didn't play Wimbledon in Australia, but he still reached three straight Grand Slam finals. So to make to to, to make this clear, this is Agassi's third straight major final because he didn't play Wimbledon 1990 and Australian Open 1991, correct? So he went to the finals of Roland Garros last year, uh, Wimbledon last year. The US Open. And, and I'm sorry, US Open last year in 1990, and now he's in the, he went to the finals of French Open. So yes, third consecutive final. Uh, I agree with you that he was uh, maybe not the favorite, but one of the top two favorites. So I, I, I picked him and Edberg as the two uh, two leading uh, favorites. And Bruguera was definitely uh, up there too. I agree with you. So so although he was not the clear, clear, clear favorite for me, he was definitely one of the top two or three to win the, to win the French. And when we look at his draw before Courier, I mean, he streamrolled opponents. Uh, he had a tricky match, I think, with Rosé. And then uh, Mancini was a big match I was looking forward to. And then uh, Becker, of course, was a tough one, uh, you know, all three hours. Uh, but there were not many... Many doubts, I think, when I was reviewing his progress in the tournament, that he's going to falter. And, yeah, uh, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I think that's a, that was more like a, my my thought on, on his fortnight. And I expected him to beat Courier because I really didn't have much knowledge of Jim Courier. I've, I've seen him play in highlights. I've read his name. He's been around the same age as Agassi and Sampras. Uh, but yeah, uh, I got a good look at Courier against Michael Steak in the semis. And, um, you know, he was trying to hit the ball very hard. But, you know, for me, Andre was a big favorite in the final. Uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, you know, let's give just a little bit of background on, on, on Agassi coming into the tournament. For, for, you know, he's, he began working with a, with a new trainer by the name of Gil Reyes a little less than a year ago uh, in 1990 of, uh, you know, summer of uh, 1990. And, uh, and apparently he bulked up, uh, you know, Reyes bulked him up by 20 pounds compared to last year's Roland Garros. So when, when he lost to Andres Gomez last year in the final, he was 20 pounds lighter than what he is now. Uh, with, uh, with 20 pounds of bulk added in, his, uh, it helped him a lot. His first serve percentage was up, much more powerful than before. He, uh, he, he was serving at 71% for the tournament until the finals which is a stat uh, listeners should keep in mind because we'll get to that a little bit later again. And he also took this tournament a little bit more seriously. You know, Agassi is known for coming to tournaments one or two days before the tournament begins. And this time he arrived on site five days ahead of the tournament started. I believe four, four, uh, not five, four days before the tournament began and had uh, practice sessions. So he was more prepared. But despite that, Sakib, you know, his first round, people, most, more, a lot of people will look over this. In his first round against Rosset, Rosset won the first set against him and had four break points to go up a double break in the second. Didn't, but still served for the second set at 5-4 and still couldn't make it. Agassi hung in and squeezed out that second set. And from that point forward, Agassi rolled all the way to the finals, playing superb tennis. Now, he did have, you know, a tough match against... Uh, Becker, I don't call. I have trouble calling his uh, win against Mancini a tough one, although it won four sets. And I'll get. To I, I have my point. own reasons for that. It was more like a, to me the two biggest forehands 
uh, along with Lendl and Courier. Mancini hits a really heavy yes. ball, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll get to that. But yeah, I don't uh, yeah, I don't fully no, I disagree, think. but I think I have a slight disagreement because of the shot making ability of the Argentine. But yeah, finish your thoughts, please. No, no, you are yes, you're right. We can we can talk about that Agassi Mancini match a little bit more. But yes, he, he had a very tough match against Becker, but I thought he played superbly well. And uh, and then he started the finals playing a very good first set, so he must be he must be deeply disappointed in in losing the final. Yeah, I mean between Korda, Patrick McIndoe, and Jakub Lasek, Agassi dropped I think what fifteen or like fourteen games in three matches. So he looked sublime. I mean he was, and, and you're right. Mark Rosse was a match where I think a lot of times these big time big time big time players kickstart their tournaments. You know, Lendl had a similar match a few years ago at Wimbledon against uh, Italian Paolo Cane. You know, went five and then reached the final. And Becker had that famous net code against Derek Rostagno at the Open. So, you you know, these are not out of the norm matches where a top player is pushed and then finds their groove. And this is exactly what you pointed out happened with Andre. So, let's talk about the final before we can roll back into the week. I think that's the approach I want to take. So, Murd, I know uh, you have a lot to say about this match. It had a lot of different factors it has a lot of wind rain interruption and then of course you know the all-american rivalry a baseball cap is introduced to the wider audience of tennis jim courier's forehand which looked like he's slapping someone i mean you are the coach but it's a very different technique than agassi so unpack the for me and the listener the second set when they left the court agassi's up a set and three one so what happened in that second set when did things get complicated complicated for agassi well, he, here's the general impression, I think, 24 hours later, is that the rain delay, well, there were two rain delays, first of all. There, were one, there was one that came at 6-3-3-1 deuce for Agassi, and, uh, and, and it was at deuce, it, it, it got interrupted 23 minutes, they came back out on plate, and then again, another one at, uh, uh, you know, one game later at deuce again, and that one lasted... Uh, 16 minutes. So you had two um, two rain delays. One at three one deuce, and the next one at three two deuce. But uh, but here see here's the general impression that uh, that the rain delay helped Agassi, and the rain delay turned the match around. Now it's true that Agassi, after the first rain delay, came back and made a few more mistakes than than he did until then because he was rolling until six three six three two love especially the rain. Delay came at 3-1 deuce, but until 2-love, he was rolling. And it's true that he made a lot more mistakes after the first rain delay and after the second rain delay. But I think that's taken away from uh, from Carrier a little bit of credit, too, because Carrier made adjustments before that. At 6-3-1-love down, Carrier made adjustments and got into a lot more aggressive forehand hitting. And, and, and quite frankly, at... Uh, at Agassi was in control there. At six three one love, Agassi serving. He just broke. now, Mur. Did you notice because we both saw what Corey said in press that uh, Jose Higueras told him in one of the rain delays that he's giving too much ground on the return of serve. Did you notice that adjustment? And what point uh, did you notice that? If you did, yes, he, yes, he did. And Carrier himself talked about that too yes. after, after the match. But he, uh, what Carrier uh, also touched to is that he was able to calm down more during the rain delays. In other words, he was able to absorb. Higueras is coaching a little bit more and, and listen to what he had to say. And he did go back a little bit, that is correct, uh, on serves to try to get more into, into play. So, yes. And, you know, he, by the way, Courier at this time began working at the, uh, 
uh, Higueras, uh, for about eight months now, they've been working together. So there's definitely uh, some help coming uh, Curry's way. Because Jose Higueras, as we know, is a very good coach who helped uh, Chang to the title in 1989. And uh, so, so yes, that did make a difference, definitely. There, there are a couple other differences that, uh, that I can get into. But at 6-3-1-11 in that game, Courier did uh, get also more aggressive, you know, just saying, no, I'm not staying back anymore. And Courier himself said that. He was a bit tentative throughout that first set. Uh, and then from that point on, it turned into a really hard-hitting match. And uh, that game uh, showed Carrier's changing intention, in my opinion. He became more aggressive. The very first point of the next game, uh, he continued that aggressive approach. And then when, when we got to 3-1 deuce, he was already in that mode. But Agassi wasn't making any mistakes, so Agassi was still in control. So that's where the rain delay does help. And one cannot say that Agassi got tight if you haven't watched this match. Look at the scoreline, you know, because he's come short in the last two majors. There was a big question, and the press doesn't help, you know, and he's such a poster boy coming into this tournament. So, But he loses the set 6-1. So w- w- what went wrong? I mean, did Courier just play better, handle the conditions, the occasion better? I mean, this was his first time, or you think Agassi contributed by just, you know, some self-doubt kicking in. Again, this is more hypothetical if you want to back it up by numbers uh, what changed in that one-sided set well to understand that fourth set uh, well Sakib, i think we have to again understand the turnaround in the second set because the second set was uh, was uh, uh, carry Car- you could, like i said you could give carriers you should give some carrier some credit for that second set turnaround because he changed his game and then but but again remember at 3-1 Agassi still had a, a break point and Courier came to the net. His changed aggressive mentality helped him there. Got to the net. He played one of his best points of the match and finished it at the net. And saved it. Got to 3-2. At Deuce, a second rain delay came. After they came back again a third time, Agassi still had a break point to go up there. And Courier once again saved it with an aggressive point. Now, Agassi did miss a sitting backhand winner attempt deep on one of the break points. So that, that was his, his fault. But now, going to your question, you know, the, the, the second set is very complicated. Courier deserves some credit, but Agassi also started making more errors. But now the fourth set that you just mentioned, I'm going to give that completely to Agassi, simply letting, just experiencing an empty sequence mentally. Because yes, uh, the, the, he won the third set, in a flurry, Agassi won the third set in a flurry from 2-1 down to 6-2 playing incredibly well tennis. So he's up two sets to one. He's still in control there. And then at love one in the fourth set, out of nowhere, he plays maybe the worst game of, of, of his match, three unforced errors, and loses his serve in a blank game. Good. Letting Courier go up 2-love in the fourth out of nowhere and giving Courier a second uh, uh, lifeline. And then Courier ran away with the set at 6-1. And one last point about that, uh, Sakib, just to kind of make a throwback to, to a decade ago, a guy by the name of Bjorn Borg was so successful because he never had these empty sequences during matches. He, he, he never let one or two games in a row go by like that. Yeah, that's a very interesting tidbit. I didn't watch uh, Borg. Uh, I only read about Borg. Uh, he was a little before my time, but uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure people who have watched would agree with Mert, but uh, going back to uh, what we're trying to break down here. So again, I'm I'm more a, a narrative guy sometimes, 
And uh, do you think uh, their history at the Voluntary Academy was also at stake? Are these are players playing one of the biggest matches of their life? Uh, that kind of goes out the window? No, for sure it, it, it plays a role, but I think it played a lesser role here than before. For example, again, I'm going to go back to the 1989 match when Carrier and Agassi played each other. And Carrier was a bit... Uh, was a bit miffed there in that match. He complained after the match vocally that uh, about uh, Nick Voltaire sitting in uh, Agassi's camp, for example, in 1989. He said, you know, I've been a, I've been a Voltaire product for the last four years now, and yet uh, here is, uh, you know, Nick sitting throughout the whole match in, in, in Andre's camp. And that was after, after his win in 1989. And uh, against Agassi, but now by this time it's clear that uh, Nick Bal- Nick Balteri is with Agassi, and uh, so I think there's less of a uh, you know tension there, so to speak. Uh, but yes, their their history plays a plays a role because uh, they've been they've been seeing each other very frequently for years and years now. They know each other's game, and I think that's one of the factors that uh, that uh, that helped Courier. He wasn't uh, intimidated by Agassi, and he wasn't. Uh, he never counted himself out, although he, at two or three points, uh, th- two or three different points during the match, he looked like he would be, he should be out of the match and still hung in there. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely well-deserved, and we don't know what the future holds, but now American tennis is looking really good. Uh, you know, we haven't had a winner in Roland Garros since Tony Trey, but Michael Chang wins it. Then last year, we have an All-American final Mind you, not including any names like McEnroe or Connors or even uh, proven players like Crickstein. It was Sampras and Agassi. And now we have Courier and Agassi. So when Courier breaks into top 10, he came into the tournament as the number 12th guy. Uh, American tennis really looks good all of a sudden. And we have the three big big players still active with Edberg, Becker and Lendl. So this changes the landscape of what's going to happen in the grass season. Yes, definitely. You know, we, we, we have to talk about the young generation, American and international, you know, and what to look forward to in the 1990s, because uh, there are a lot there are a lot of good good good, good names. But uh, should we just quickly finish the uh, the final, you know, Carrier Agassi, what happened in the fifth set very quickly and then move on to that? Because that would be a talk with the topic that I'd like to spend. Absolutely. I, I like jumping all over the place. So keep me in check. Yeah, let's uh, let's, <laughs> let's let's give Jim his due there. No, no, no problem. Well, well, well actually, uh, the fifth set was a terrific set of tennis. And, uh, and uh, the win really, well, for, for one thing, the win picked up in the third set. Uh, so there were a lot. And then in the fifth set, we had major wind. And, and, and what I mean by that, I mean trees waving back and forth, you know, right outside the stadium. Clay swirling on the court uh, at different times where the players had to cover their faces. So the fifth set was played under strong wins, and despite that, the quality was was quite incredible. And then they, the players got into a back and forth, you know, carrier at uh, three all uh, breaks Agassi to go up four three. Agassi breaks him back to get back to four all, and carrier breaks again to go up five four and serve for the match, and he finishes it off. And uh, and, and I think uh, Sakib again, uh, Agassi must be deeply disappointed to lose this match. He was. Uh, he was in control, uh, 6-3, 2 love, 6-3, 3-1, points to go up 4-1. Uh, he was uh, playing very well coming into that match too, as we, as we noted before. And then after the rain delay, okay, he loses the second set, but he still wins the third set in a flurry, and he's still in control and plays that uh, empty fourth set, uh, so to speak. And then Carrier 
you know, of course, in the fifth set, it's a battle back and forth. He ends up losing, and I think he'll be deeply disappointed as as uh, he'll consider this match as one that he should have won and finally got that initial, uh, got that inaugural uh, major title. And and I think we can both uh, agree, and I think anyone who watched the match yesterday, this was uh, the best Agassiz played in a major final. I think against Gomez, you could see he was a bundle of nerves, and Gomez, of course, played some amazing shot-making, and then Sampras uh, totally... Uh, overpowered him with the, with his big big serving game but here i think agassi you know he came within a set of winning his first major so has to be very disappointed yes he, he very disappointing and 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 you know actually i'd like to turn back to you at this point and ask and ask your opinion on cuz i cuz i consider agassi's play up to the finals and including that first set against courier just phenomenal you know and even though he was in trouble with rosé in the in the first couple of sets, but I mean, let me ask you: When he, didn't he play one of his best matches against Boris Becker, who I thought played a good match too in the semis? Yeah, that was a that, that was a good match actually, and uh, Becker, you know, won Australian Open early this year and became number one. But since then, he's been uh, he hasn't played a full season. He injured his uh, uh, thigh in in Brussels, and that uh, gave uh, the ranking back to Edberg. He then missed, uh, I believe. The California event in Stuttgart and played a a wonderful week in uh, Monte Carlo, and uh, he played Bruguera in a four-hour, twelve-minute f- final. Again, those who say Becker can't play on clay, you have to look at weeks like that. The loss to Mancini and now to Bruguera, he's right up there with the best clay quarters. Uh, is he as good as Agassi or Lendl? Can he can he win those titles? I don't know, but I think he's too good uh, to not win on clay. And this week was another example. Now to answer your question. Uh, Becker Agassi is a is a is a different rivalry. Becker won the first three matches and now has managed to lose the last three. Agassi has uh, have dropped maybe one set in the last three matches against Becker, and he was a huge favorite coming in, according to the bookmakers. But uh, especially after the way Becker played him in New York, uh, Becker was criticized heavily to stay on the on the baseline and try to exchange forehands and backhands with Agassi when his game should be at the net. And uh, his stubbornness, I think a lot of his coaches have called. Ian Tiriak has say, famously said his stubbornness made him great and his stubbornness made destroy him. And when you watch matches like the US Open, you thought he wouldn't have a chance. But then going back to your point, I know it's a long answer. He played really a good strategic match uh, up till the fourth set, which again was close. He had few looks on Agassi, serve in the fourth set as well. 6-1 doesn't do justice to that set. Becker was in more than few games. And uh, I think the first game is key, even on clay. You can break and then get broken right back. Becker uh, deployed this tr- strategy of using the drop shot and created three break points in the first game. That was a long game, and Agassi somehow found his best tennis in the opening parts of the match. And I think the newfound confidence in this rivalry was there with Agassi as he was dictating, uh, I felt like, most of the baseline exchanges. Becker's underrated for his feel. You could see that. And the third set was, again, you know, how badly Becker wants a French title. Uh, was on display, but full marks to Agassi. He came in as a favorite. For me, he was a slight favorite, and he delivered the knockout punch in four. Uh, what are your thoughts? I don't know if you got the full uh, context of the Becker-Agassi match and the rivalry coming into this. No, you 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 touched on it very well. I I really don't have much to add. Is but uh, but what, what I did I I was a little bit surprised by. Uh, uh, the stat that Agassi, uh, you know, or or I watched, you know, you you could see it too. But Agassi came to the net more than Becker did, 
uh, in this match, which to me is uh, is surprising. And uh, and I and I wonder if that really supports the critics that. Uh, that, uh, I, I think it's it's a fair stat, but some of it is was it intentional because Becker used heavy drop shot tactics, so I guess he was drawn into the net too. So I don't know if uh, the stats tell the story, but I think we're yes. overall point is 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 right on because Becker has been criticized in the last year and a half or two for spending too much time on baseline against the likes of Agassi, Lendl, the players who really like to live there. And uh, he should be making a living like Cash and Edberg at the net. And I think that's what's so frustrating. So let me ask you, Murd, a very narrative question, which uh, I'm guilty, I'm a Becker fan. But we get this discussion. Of course, he's number two in the world and was ranked number one in February. Is he the best player in the game today if he's... uh, if he's fully on. I know it's a very narrative-based question. Uh, a week like this in Roland Garros and a final in Monte Carlo, winning Australia. Uh, is he is he the man, according to you, if, if everybody's playing their best, he comes out on top? Because I get this question a lot. No, from from, from today's top players, I mean, we we would have to consider what, you know, when we say Lendl's top game, what are we, what are we talking about? So Lendl might have a few words to say about that, you know, at the top of his game. But yes, as far as shot making, power, and 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 you know, big serve, big shots, and and physically dominating, uh, I would you you would have to put Becker. I, I would agree with you. Yes, Boris Becker at the top of his game would be the toughest player to beat today on a fast surface. Though I would like to put that uh, caveat in there. I, I on a fast surface. I'm not sure if Becker, for example, at the top of his game, still beats an Agassi or an Edberg, even Edberg, who's not a baseliner, at the top of their game on clay. You know, Becker has to prove that. So so does Becker Becker take enough confidence from this loss, which is not a bad loss at all, going into his favorite part of the season, which starts uh, four days after he lost this match in Queens? Yes. Yes, yes, of course he should. And, and you know, like I said, I mean, this is his... He, 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 did, he had a very good show here at the French Open. He lost to the to the best player of the, the, coming into that match, at least. That uh, that was that that was during the two weeks uh, up to his match. And uh, I don't think there's anything, any shame there to lo- losing to Agassi, especially the way Agassi played in that semifinal. And from this point going forward, that should give him confidence, of course. Yes, for, for, for his favorite part of the year coming up. Yeah, I think uh, Becker famously or infamously when he lost to Agassi in the round drop uh, in the semifinal of the Frankfurt World Tour Finals or uh, the World Champ- the World Championships, he had a chance to become number one and then his number one uh, destiny had to wait till he went in Australia to seal that ranking for the first time. I think that was a match which I was very surprised when Becker lost indoors in Germany to Agassi 4-4 four and four, and that kind of laid the foundation for this match that Agassi, again, can play Becker on... Now he's beaten Becker on indoor hard outdoor hard in I think in California and now he beats him on clay so this rival is very interesting for many reasons because they're the two biggest superstars of the game Lendl and Edberg uh, have you know held the number one ranking are you know uh, p- permanent residents of the top three ranking but I think for as far as stardom goes it's uh, it's not a surprise that Becker and Agassi are the two most popular names uh, that float around in today's business Yes, but Saki, what would you say about Carrier now? Because uh, you know that's uh, he, he just won. Uh, do we wait to see how he does uh, in the other majors before we can we can count him among the top uh, three or four best players? I mean, he is four and zero after today's fi- after yesterday's final. In other words, he, he after winning this trophy right here, now he's four and zero in finals. Now this was his first major final, 
No, that's a but, staggering uh, number. And Key Biscayne yeah. is not a small tournament. I mean, and then even that's the tournament right. in California, in Indian Wells, that's the best of five final. He beat Guy Forger. So, yeah, this is uh, this is new, new waters. I mean, I didn't see this guy coming, like I said before. Uh, he's definitely go- he's going to be ranked with top five, uh, you know, today uh, when the rankings come out. So so let me throw this back to you. How do you see his technique? I'm I'm kind of mesmerized by the forehand. It's not the most appealing forehand. How how would this shot uh, measure up on the low bouncing lawns in England? Yes, this is going to be a, a good question. My initial uh, my initial reaction would be it's not going to fare very well because he's got a, he's got extreme grips on both sides, not just on the forehand, but he has an extreme grip on the backhand too, and he has a. He has the kind of backhand that you, where you kind of pull from the elbow up, and uh, and his racket face is very closed. Uh, I don't know how he will handle the low bouncing balls and the fast balls at uh, at Wimbledon, or even on on a, on a fast hard court. So you know this this all remains to be seen. But I think Clay did did work in his favor, and he did grow up uh, you know playing a lot on clay in the U.S. Although it's not the same type of clay. But uh, it's going. It's going to be. A, it's going to be a quest- good question. He is coached by one of the best. Uh, you know, one of the best clay court minds in in the game. So the, uh, I don't know how much uh, uh, Higueras can also help him on other surfaces. Uh, but that all remains to be seen. It'll it'll be very interesting to to see how Curry evolves on surfaces mm-hmm. other than clay. You're right that he won those two tournaments on hard courts, so he can play on hard courts. Yeah, he, we'll he only see. he only had won two matches on clay this year. Again, like you had pointed out, he had beaten yeah. Agassi before on at Roland Garros. So clay is not like an alien surface for him. He definitely backed it up this two weeks to show that he can play on the stuff. Let's talk about the world number one, Stefan Edberg. Your one of your chosen picks to win the whole thing. When Courier beat him in the quarters, and of course they had a five set match not too long ago in Australia, uh, in Australian Open. So was that the match where you started taking Korea seriously? Let's walk through that match. Was it a surprise, A, given their recent history? And then secondly, what ma- what did that tell you about Korea's ability at this level when he got the better of Edberg, who's been super consistent? Yes, now this uh, this is where you touched on a, on a good point there. This is where I really started believing that uh, Korea could win the tournament, although I still saw Agassi as the, as the favorite, like I said before. But uh, this is where I started thinking Courier can win this tournament after all he has a, uh, in other words I saw him as having a better shot at winning than I did what the, at the very beginning because Edberg came into the match playing very well he he he, he played an inc- superb match against uh, Cherkasov in in the round of 16 Edberg did and won in three straight sets Cherkasov did not play bad that match and uh, and Edberg still beat him in straight sets and uh, he's been a finalist here before uh, and and I and I really felt that he was the favorite going into that match against Carrier, and then after I watched the first setting, I saw Carrier win the first set six four. Uh, then I thought to myself, my God, Carrier is actually handling Edberg's serves very very well, and and I think the fact that Edberg, uh, you know, Edberg's favorite serve is the one that kicks up high, and that not bothering Carrier really made a big difference, and and uh, and when Carrier won that first set. Even though Edberg won the second set, I still felt like Carrier had the upper hand there because they were playing a lot of baseline rallies, and Carrier was just uh, how do you say this? It was almost like Carrier was putting Edberg into a prison in one corner of the court and was just keeping him there until until Edberg just got overwhelmed and made a mistake. And that routine continued for another two sets, and Carrier won that match. And that's when uh, 
Yeah, I mean that that that's that's definitely Carrier's big win on the way to the title outside of the outside of his uh, you know victory in the finals. Sure, let's take a deeper dive into Edberg and, uh, and and Edberg and Becker have been very synonymous, you know, because of you know how closely their careers have been so far. World number one and two coming in, both lost first round French Open last year. So, do you like Edberg's approach on clay? He plays to his identity. He is never caught on the baseline unless he absolutely has to. He'll even chip and charge any return. Becker, on the other hand, spends way too much time. I could be a biased Becker fan, but I want your uh, observation on how these two men, the world number one and two, go about their business on clay. But if you look at the finals, Becker has made some great finals on clay in Monte Carlo, in Rome. Uh, not Rome, sorry, two in Monte Carlo. Uh, so talk about the comparison, how the world number one and two approach clay and. Uh, and, we no, can... I, and, and, you know, we could, we could easily include, by the way, Pete Sampras into this conversation, too, yeah, although he's very young. He's right? very he's young. Not, I mean, not, I'm, yeah. he doesn't have the numbers on clay yet. No, right, right. But, but, but will, he, will he also adopt a you know, serve and volley game? Will he go more Edberg's way or will he stay more Boris Becker's way, stay more at the baseline? But going back to Becker and, uh, and Edberg, I, personally, I agree with the way Edberg is going by it. I think you have to play your strength. Regardless of the surface, if you if you're doing you know something very very well, and uh, the, 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 that's your we- but that's your number one weapon, and you cannot leave your number one weapon in the second plan, in your B plan, if you're going to try to win on any surface. So you have to employ your number one weapon, and uh, Edberg sticks with a with his A plan regardless of the surface. I'm not sure that Becker does that. He's still you know, of course Becker's serve is huge. But I don't see Becker consistently serving and volleying as much as Edberg does. And also, I don't see Becker sometimes during rallies specifically looking to come in. Edberg, for example, will play points where he hits a shot to the corner, the other player is running, and you can tell Edberg is just itching to come forward. He's, he takes those couple of steps forward, and he feels like the ball is going to float back. He'll keep running forward and take it in the air. But sometimes Becker will hit that same shot, a very powerful shot from the baseline, and he sees his opponent on the run to the corner, stretched, and he still waits at the baseline for the next ball to come back and bounce. And uh, that's that's where the big difference is. I don't know if one is better than the other, but personally, I prefer what Edberg is doing. No, I'm glad. I think we are watching the same matches. Usually, I value your uh, insights a lot, uh, and I'm you know, in this uh, on this particular observation, I think we're both seeing it similarly because Becker frustrates. A lot of his fans by staying way too often on the baseline. He has a decent weight on his ground strokes, don't get me wrong. And uh, he improvises a lot, but you know, I think Edberg has true identity, no matter what the surface. And, and you put it uh, quite beautifully, like you, you, you have to go with one's strengths instead of just uh, mixing and matching. And, so, and Saki, one more point about that too. We, we, we all, let's also be, uh, you know, let's also give credit where credit is due, Boris Becker probably has more confidence in his baseline strokes and he probably feels like he can finish from the baseline because he's got a much more solid forehand than Edberg does. And even on the backhand side, Edberg's got a great backhand, but Becker's backhand can generate uh, some pace too. So maybe, you know, it could be that he feels he can he can finish the point from the baseline, whereas Edberg may feel more inclined to come and, to the net to finish it. And the careers, young careers so far also have, I think, a similar trajectory as how they both approach the baseline. Uh, Edberg has been with Tony Pickard since I remember forever, probably. And Becker has, uh, you know, I was very surprised when he let go of Bob Brett this year 
after winning Australia, and now he's been working, I don't know, on a full-time basis with his Davis Cup coach, Nicky Pellich. And Ian Tyriak is the big voice in the house. So, uh, to me, I think that shows, again, these are these are narratives. I'm sure they're both world number one and two for a reason. But I think uh, uh, what I'm trying to say here is Becker's not too afraid to experiment, if that makes sense. Even his coaching relationships sometimes don't, don't last. And Edberg is just, you know, the way he goes about his business is, uh, is, is really set in his ways. And who am I to say which way works, which way doesn't? But I think those comparisons are pretty glittering. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, Sakib, let me ask you very quickly, just a couple of other players perhaps from the, earlier in the tournament. Uh, unless you had more comments about um, about the top players, uh, but uh, well, I wanted to ask you, uh, and let me know if you do. But I wanted to ask you about, uh, for example, you know, we had a Connors Chang match earlier in the first week. Uh, the, it was a thrilling match until it wasn't. Meaning, uh, Connors won the fourth set to extend the match into a fifth set, but then retired immediately after the first point of the fifth set, saying he can no longer play; that he's in deep pain. Uh, which was disappointing, but but it was an interesting and a very good match. There was the Sampras Muster match where you know Muster won the first two sets. A Muster who's coming back from injury still uh, had arthroscopic surgery in March, and Sampras who you know who's who's very young at this point, but Sampras pulled it off. And uh, and then there were a couple like Mancini. We mentioned Mancini earlier. I'd like to hear your comments about those uh, if you can, or you can take it any way you want. You can focus on one or just to mention those all in a row. It's up to you. Sure, I didn't catch the Connors and Chang match, but of course I caught Jimmy Connors in the booth uh, for the Agassi and Mancini match. Uh, that's maybe a day after he had, you know, thrown in uh, his result against uh, Michael Chang uh, because he was he wasn't f- physically uh, up to the task. Uh, but I'll definitely want to talk more about Mancini in depth. He, he's a very interesting case study. Uh, I didn't watch much of his matches live in '89 when he won the two big titles in clay in Rome. Uh, beating Agassi in five and beating Becker in Monte Carlo. And as a result of those titles, he was top 10 in the world. I think he finished the year as number nine. And uh, whatever highlights I watched of him, he seems like a player who can win the French Open to me. Uh, again, you can laugh at me, but I think I like that. No, no. I like that yeah. style. Uh, Perez Roldan was another guy from Argentina who played a five-set final against Lendl in Rome. But this guy, I think, is maybe Roldan two, uh, one, you know, 2.0. I mean, he, he can really hit the ball hard. He has to be one of the hardest hitters out there. But interestingly, I don't know what happened in 1990. He dropped all the way to 128. And this year, again, he found, he built some momentum. He played challengers in South America, won, I believe, a tournament in Santiago. And then uh, he played a decent clay cycle, if you look at his numbers. He reached a final, I think, in Rome again, where he could not finish the final against Emilio Sanchez, but had some quality wins against De La Pena, Jonas Svensson. So that's why I was really looking forward to the Agassi match when the draw came out. Because I remember Mancini from two years ago, and when a player you follow start putting results, uh, my coverage may be a little more biased than yours, but uh, I was looking forward to his match. And as we talked briefly at the, at the start of the show, that this match between Agassi and Mancini, for me, was more about shot-making. And Agassi really diffused the Mancini power well because... He moves well, and Agassi has a better backhand, better overall game. Mancini, I think, dictates huge with his heavy forehand. Comes to the net, I think, for a clay court player quite quite a lot. So that was a match that uh, I watched, and I thought it lived up to some billing. And then uh, Thomas Muster is someone 
who got uh, a serious you know accident in in Miami a few years ago but uh, he's won eight titles on clay if there's a thing as a clay court specialist he's definitely one of them and uh, Murd, before you unpack the Connors Chang match you watch do you also notice like all these guys who play so good on clay Mancini Mooster Emilio Sanchez Sergey Bruguera we'll talk about Bruguera later in the show all these guys don't even play the grass they play a heavy clay schedule if you look at their results uh, they they play the post Wimbledon clay tournaments so that's kind of the norm uh, when I was a kid growing up I thought Wimbledon is the most important tournament but the more you get educated about the sport there are a lot of players especially whose beloved surface is clay they don't even make those two three weeks in Europe that that are held on grass yes it's an it's an interesting observation and, and the the reverse is true too but not from the top players in other words there are some players uh, you know Australian or or uh, I believe a couple, couple of South African players and, and a few other players who, who do pass up on, on clay uh, on, on most of the clay court season, but do play, you know, Wimbledon and, 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 the, and the hard court season. But you don't hear about that as much as you hear about the clay court specialists not playing Wimbledon because they're, uh, they're bigger profile players, the ones that do that. So, yes, it's, it's interesting. But, you know, I mean, playing, um, playing all four majors has traditionally not been a pri- priority for players. It was, you know, back in the, back in the early 80s or even into the 70s, the first full decade of the, uh, of the open era, hardly any, players, uh, hardly any player would consider playing all four, ter- all four majors. Uh, th- that rarely happened. So it's not that unusual in that sense. And, 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 you, and you can understand that some of these players probably feel like they can, uh, they can get the bulk of their points playing on their favorite surface but if 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 that's okay i'd like to go back to mancini for just for a second and and absolutely yeah uh you know we we can talk about Mancini in a minute but first about the connor's chang match uh there isn't much to unpack there but the one thing that i'd like to say about connor's is the reason why connor's is still able to uh stay with the players i mean he was 38 years old uh, on the day of this match and he was playing chang who's 19 half his age and they were playing on Chang's favorite surface and Connor's least favorite surface. And despite that, the, and, and, and by the way, keep in mind, Connor's played a grueling five-set match against Ronald Agenor just two day, just the round before, less than 48 hours earlier. And, uh, and he comes back out and, and takes Michael Chang to a fifth set. Now, he couldn't, he couldn't physically play anymore, and he quit, and... And, and apparently, uh, not apparently, I saw the highlight actually where they were carrying him up the stairs after he left the court. So he was in deep pain. And, but the fact that he stayed out there and actually took this to a fifth set says a lot about Connors, not just his grit and his, uh, his intensity, but it says a lot about him able to, you know, be able, he was able to evolve his game through times. You know, he's been playing since mid-70s at the, to- at the top of the game. And he's able to evolve his game. He takes the ball so early, and he was even able to rush Michael Chang and, and force him into errors on clay because he takes the ball so early and doesn't, doesn't give any time to his opponents. He is one of those guys who adopted his game to the changing times. And we can get into that more a little bit later, but there are some guys who have not been able to do that. Now, going, going to Mancini along the same lines, Mancini back in 1989 or two or three years ago, Saki had one of the far, hardest forehands. I mean, when he when he hit that forehand, he was considered a really heavy hitter, and he still is. Didn't but, they didn't they call him Boom Boom for a while? I know that's a name that's been associated with Becker, but I remember Mancini 
the word boom boom someplace if i'm not misplaced in my memory huh no i i haven't heard that but i do know that but but collins called agassi mancini matches brawls in the bois the, the, the agassi mancini match here this one at the french open brawl in the bois meaning <laughs> bra, you know brawl in the woods and because because they're hitting the ball so hard but, but the point i was trying to make there is along with connors is you know mancini is now one of the several guys who hit the ball so hard i mean he he he's, he was a, he was a very powerful heavy hitter back just two three years ago with a big forehand probably one of the biggest forehands in the game and now he's just one of them i mean there, a lot of people are starting to hit the ball hard and i think the final here agassi carrier was the culmination of that effect no i think uh, well said so we don't want to forget uh, the german uh... Michael is it Michael Stich or Michael Stich how do you say the name uh, he read the Stich. semis Michael Stich <laughs> Michael Stich okay thank you yeah these these you know tennis is you know very international and you you learn to pronounce these names or unpronounced when you hear someone make a mockery of it but he, he <laughs> well I'm not I'm not perfect on it either so he he didn't come from nowhere either if you look at his uh, draw again I was not as informed about his trajectory but he had beaten edberg in one of the clay tournaments and he had reached a final i remember uh, reading about it lost to lendl in the memphis indoors and then uh, as we were doing uh, preparing for the show uh, he is a french semi finalist now uh, you know him and becker could have been the first german final at roland garros had they both converted against agassi and courier so what do you think of his game it's pretty elegant looking game uh, uh, a lot of people are already comparing to sampras but i don't see the stability Uh, but again, it's a great result. I don't want to be hard on the guy. He just uh, made his biggest result and had reached, I think, three or four finals. A couple in Australia, uh, tuning up for the Australian Open, and then reached a Memphis indoor finals. This guy can definitely play. Very elegant stroke maker. Yes, very good, very good style, and 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 he can generate power too. He's one. He's another one. One of those, uh, you know, power players that can that can uh, that can overwhelm. opponents and he's a shot maker i i consider uh, mikhail stich to be very uh, talented uh he's got a big, he's got a good serve good shot making on both sides good hands at the net so he's got an all around game and it, it, once again i mean he to be fair his uh, his draw opened up a little bit here in the in, in the french you know in the could a couple of players pulled out on on his on his side of the draw Remind me who was it that uh, that pulled out from his side of the draw? Jonas Svensson, who made the semis a couple of years ago, and a certain guy called Ivan Lendl. There you go. I mean, Lendl and uh, Svensson pulled out, so his draw opened up a little bit. Sampras and Muster were on his side. Sampras takes out Muster in five sets, then is exhausted and gets completely dominated by Terry Champion the next round, and uh, and so Chang's draw opened up, and and, and uh, not Chang, um, Stich's draw opened up, and he moved forward all the way to Carrier. So. uh full credit to him you know the, the semifinals and a very elegant player to watch he can generate power i'd be very curious to see how how he does in the future yeah he's definitely you know left his impression because uh, his uh, serve motion is pretty pretty f- fluent and uh, uh easy on the eyes but uh, let's see you know what he can make after his french open semis and now we have two germans in the top 10 so mikhail stich that's how you say it right mikhail stich he did good Uh, this week let's talk about lendl the world number 3 second year in a row misses french open this year not by choice as he had a minor intervention for his wrist uh, didn't play much on clay played two tournaments and then uh, waited till the very last minute to recover and then with withdraws uh, 
But he had a very solid start. He's still the top three players, according to many. Uh, should be. Made the Australian final, won a couple of tournaments indoors. Beat Pete Sampras in Philadelphia in a five-setter. And then uh, this year he didn't play Miami. He went to Japan. So Lendl's schedule has been little... He's been tinkering with the schedule, to say the least. Uh, last year he dedicated the entire clay court season in preparation to Wimbledon. Didn't play for two months from Tokyo to all the way to Queens, London and wins a tournament, beats Becker on the way. So this year, uh, of course, uh, he didn't play the French Open for different reasons. So looking at his year, he's played five finals. Uh, you think the knives are out for Lendl? I mean, or you think uh, we still wait and see he's uh, top three? He could be still in the race for number one, you think? Yes, he could still be in the race for number one. I think for what the, the biggest uh, adversary for Lendl at this point is, is injuries, his physical health. Uh, you know, he withdrew from, uh, he didn't just withdraw from Roland Garros, but he also withdrew from the Italian Open, too. So he's, he has uh, he has some uh, injury problems to deal with here, which I think will come uh, more frequently from this point on in his career, uh, I'm guessing, because, uh, you know, he's he's a machine. Lendl is a machine. Lendl is the guy who invented, uh, uh, in a stellar way, off-court training and, uh, you know, physical bulk up and, uh, you know, using phys- brute physical force or sheer training off the court to add to your on-court game. And, uh, he, and he could outpower players. I mean, for those, for those who wonder, hey, go back and watch Ivan Lendl's first major final against Bjorn Borg in 1981. And uh, you'll see a skinny Lendl who's just looping balls back, and he's nothing like he is now. I mean, he's, he's, he's an absolute beast now on the court, just pounding balls away. So because of his style of game, yes, he still has a chance at number one. And keep me honest here. I mean, I've read a lot about Lendl, watched a lot of Lendl too. Uh, he does things differently. I mean, uh, doesn't practice at the Open uh, because he lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. I believe I read somewhere he moved to the States because majority of the tour was in the States. So he wants to, wanted to have accessibility to these tournaments. Then he invites these youngsters to practice with him. I think Chang and Sampras are both served as practice partners, and then Sampras beat him at the Open last year. So Lendl is quite different. I mean, he's a, I don't want to say he's an enigma, because Becker is like Press's delight, very open with his quotes. Press hasn't been too kind to Lendl, but Lendl works in different ways compared to, say, Becker and Edberg and some of the other top men. Well, Press hasn't been too kind to Lendl, because, uh, Saki, to be honest with you, uh, and it's not just against the Press, Lendl is an intimidating guy. You know, he's uh, he, he doesn't... He doesn't get intimidated by opponents, first of all. I mean, he's one of the first guys to stand up to, to, the, to, to the referees when he was playing Macron and say, why are you afraid of, 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 of him yelling at you or Macron or yelling at you? You know, are you afraid of him? Are you afraid of him? These are famous quotes of... Yeah, but those, those are them. good quotes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, the good quotes. What, what, what I mean to say is, uh, Lendl, you know, stands up to anybody and gets in their face, regardless of who they are or what it, what they've done or what is the accepted norm in tennis world. He's, he's, you know, he's a bit of a renegade in that sense. And his game is intimidating too. So if you, you know, if his presence probably in the locker room is also intimidating and, uh, and, and, and same thing, he's, uh, he intimidates probably the press too. Some, some, some press people are not very comfortable asking him questions that they would ask other, that they may be with, with other players who are more smiling and welcoming to questions. So, yes, overall, he's an intimidating guy, and uh, and therefore sometimes he gets a bad rep in that. Bad, but bad don't you think there's a, there's a bias against him from the English-speaking media? They Because he's very short with his answers, very mechanical maybe. He doesn't yes. give them, you know, the the delightful 
or even condescending, you know, superstar answers like McEnroe and Connors or Becker, you know, some of these guys just throw in quotes. I mean, Lendl is just very to the point. Yes, first of all, Lendl in his younger years didn't 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 talk too much anyway. You know, he's, uh, whether it's due to language uh, barrier or or not, maybe he was just a more uh, loner. Who knows? But uh, he didn't talk too much anyway. But later in his career, he started. You know, he in the late '80s, for example, he's been. He's been more forthcoming with quotes, but he's not really a one-liner guy. That's true. You know, he's, he's not really a one-liner guy. Uh, another aspect, Murd, while you were speaking about Lendl's, you know, his first final, I just realized, and I'm sure you have realized too, when Lendl was playing his absolute best tennis, 87, he won that four-hour U.S. Open final against Villander. Again, a very long final role on Garros against Villander. If anybody had told you, now we are in 91, that Lendl would not reach a French Open semi for the next four years. Would you have believed it? I, I probably penciled him for at least two titles. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you, yes. Losing to Jonas Swenson in 88 was a no-name. Swenson, of course, can hit the ball very hard. And Lendl had won an epic final against Guillermo Perez Roldan in Rome. Then loses to Swenson. Next year loses to Chang. Then pre- prefers to play... Uh, Wimbledon, I mean, prepare for Wimbledon, sits out, Roland Garros, same thing this year. And now next year he'll be 90, uh, he'll be 32 uh, when he returns to Roland Garros. So I don't know if he has another Roland Garros in him. Do you think hard courts are his best chance for another well, major? Well, you know, I've, I've argued with a lot of people about this, but I, I consider Landel, because a lot of people believe that hard courts is, is, his, uh, is his best surface, but I've always felt that clay court was Landel's best surface. And uh, so it, it is shocking to me, too, that he has not reached a, a final since, uh, since 1987 at, uh, at Roland Garros. But uh, does he have another French Open in him? Uh, I believe he does, except that there are now, you know, clay court specialists that are coming up. So I don't know if he, again, I mean, is he, is he going to be able to pull it off against powerful hitters? Look, Sakim, we just watched. Again, I keep coming back to the same point, I know, but... Uh, Carrier Agassi final was the hardest hitting final I've ever seen to date in, 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 in majors. I mean, these guys are just pounding the ball. And, and both, uh, of, both of these guys combine, I think, a 0-7 against Lendl. They don't even win sets. <laughs> yes, no, okay, okay. But, but let me stay with that for a second, okay? Agassi and now it's not just these two guys. The point, the larger point I'm trying to make is not just Carrier and Agassi. Chang is hitting harder than he was two or three years ago. Okay, Lendl is the guy who began this trend. And now he's just one of the guys. I mean, Forge, Becker, Stich can also nail the ball. Okay, no. they're, not, they're not baseliners. So, Murd, you're the coach here. Do you think Lendl's yeah. racket change to Mizuno, you think, is that a good change? <laughs> well, you know, Lendl was hitting the ball hard before that. Before the I mean, racket, racket looked smaller. No the Adidas doubt. one looked really small to me on yeah, TV. No, no, there's no... <laughs> There's no doubt that the racket change helps. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. But but Lendl was a hard hitter even before that. And 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 you know there, there are some of these other players like Forge, Bekersti. You know also nailed the ball well. But they're not baseliners per se. They do not continually pound from the baseline. Curry and Agassi do. You know we just mentioned Mancini. He does. Let me, uh, if you don't mind me staying with this point just a, just for a second. Um, for example, Agassi you know, made a comment, uh, like I said, in 1989 about Lendl's forehand being super powerful, but when he played Courier, that he thought Courier could, could generate as much pace, if not more. And nothing. And he did use this word, you know, it's not much compared to Courier's power, which I find a little bit outrageous, but none, nonetheless, it plays into that larger narrative. Uh, players, 
players need to keep up with this changing pace. Now, you know, Lendl looked so dominating in 1984, 1984, you know, 19, mid-1980s all the way to 1987 because he was the only guy who could just overwhelm his opponents with power. He's just one of the seven, eight, or nine guys now who can do that. Let me give you an example uh, of a match from this tournament. Take Jakob Lasek, for example, the Swiss guy, who was a very solid player. He was, he's been top 10 players in the last two or three years, okay? Uh, a top 10 player in the very late 1980s. And yet already here we are in 1991. He plays Agassi in the quarterfinals, and, he's, and he plays his traditional one-handed backhand slash Eastern grip forehand style baseline play, and he gets completely overwhelmed by Agassi's power and ball speed. You know, McEnroe is no longer at the top of his game. That's clear. You know, his genius shot making by itself is no longer enough to outplay the power being thrown at him either. You know, Mancini, for example, we just talked about, he's, a, he's considered a heavy hitter, but even against Agassi, he was out hit for two, two sets and then just went all out to squeak by in the third set. And then he couldn't sustain it and just eroded away in the fourth set gets blown away 6-1 because Agassi can sustain that rhythm. For, for the whole match. Uh, you know, so it, these hard hitters are coming in, and I'm not sure if the guys like Lendl, for example, can win three, four matches in a row against these hard hitters. Maybe one match, but no, I don't I, know about three or four matches. I think you're definitely onto something. Lendl's last best of five set match against Agassi was 89, when Lendl was, you know, really playing good tennis and Agassi up and coming. So I'm sure both might have moved slightly in the different direction, which is fair. But I'll... Uh, like to challenge your assertion, which I rarely do, because uh, I think you you can teach me tennis pretty much. No, no. But uh, uh, when you said Lendl's uh, best surface is clay, I don't uh, I don't challenge that. But in the last few years, given his uh, choice of missing the French and then whatever's happened, Lendl's serve and forehand come to his rescue. If you look in the indoor final, he beat Pete Sampras this year. He heard, he held he won first serve points eighty five percent, fired twenty three aces, and beat the young Sampras. Avenge the U.S. Open loss in a best-of-five setting. So I think I'll just challenge it by saying at this stage of his career, Lendl can still go toe-to-toe, which he did against Edberg in five in Australia, lost a close final to Becker, beat Sampras in Philly, beat Steak in Memphis. I think on the faster courts, he's as good as any. But on clay, because there's an unknown, he hasn't played two full seasons. I'm not sure if uh, he can hang with the Mancinis or... Uh, Emilio Sanchez or Agassiz, you know, who are like, who are just moving better and playing the the grind game better from the back of the court. That's what I think. He, I'm not saying he's not a better clay court player, but I think Lendl today at 31 year, uh, years of old, he's a better threat. And even at Wimbledon, I mean, last Wimbledon he lost, last two he's made the semis. No, I, I can't argue with that, uh, Sakib. You're right. I mean, you, you're every every point you made there is right. And like I said, I've uh, I, I've, I've been argued against many times about uh, my insertion that I feel Lendl's best surface is clay. And many people have said exactly what you're saying, then those are valid points. So, no, you, you might be right. All right, so let's wrap this show up before... Let's talk about some of the younger names you had mentioned earlier. ATP Top 10 is... Uh, the tennis Top 10 is looking quite young. There are few talents, like I know Santoro is close to it, Goran Ivanisevic, the man who beat... Becker at French Open last year made the French uh, Wimbledon semis last year. Is 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 a top ten resident, uh, one of the biggest serves in the game. Sampras won the U.S. Open. So let's talk about some of the known names and some of the not so known names who are knocking the door. 
Well, there are well, for, there's a good, very good nucleus and a, and a, and a large number of uh, young generation players that uh, that are coming up and and a lot to look forward to in the 1990s. You know, we got the well, you got the American uh, gang first of all. You got Agassi at 21 years old, you know, still young and still looking for his first major title. You got Carrier, although Agassi is established at this point. Uh, you got Carrier at 20 years old now. You got Chang and Sampras at 19 years old each. And you have David Wheaton at 21 years old. These are all very promising up-and-coming players, Americans, five of them. And then you got the international players, you got Goran Ivanisevic. He's 19 years old. He's a very promising player, big serve, uh, talented ground strokes. You got Fabrice Santora, two-handed both sides, uh, very talented. He's 18, year old, 18 years old, French guy. Uh, Andrei Cherkasov, he's 19 years old. He reached the quarterfinals in Australia in the U.S. Open in 1990, last year. And now he's in the, he lost in the fourth round here to Ed Bird. Uh, you have Magnus Larsson, the Swedish guy who just entered top 50 after turning pro less than three years ago. He's 21 years old. So uh, there, you know, there are a lot of uh, up-and-coming names uh, that, that I believe um, uh, will, will do very well in the years to come. So this is actually a very exciting turn of the decade type of year 1991 i think and i'm going to you know i'm going to speculate that hard hitters again going back to my narrative of earlier i'm going to speculate that players who keep up with this hard hitting uh, early preparation uh, type of tennis are going to be the ones who are going to emerge victorious and the ones who are not going to adopt adapt to that style are going to are going to be are going to be left behind hmm, so that's some Good information. I didn't know much about Santoro. I've seen Evanisevic a few times, so thanks for bringing those names. I'll try to follow them through whatever little means I have. Following tennis is through usually newspapers and magazines and whenever we get live tennis. So let me ask you this question. Agassi is the, is the best player to not have won a major or a Grand Slam tournament. If you take him out of the way, who else is there who should have won a major? Key Forge seems to be a very talented player. Is he on your list of guys who can win a major or who should have won a major? How do you rate him? And if there's another name, throw in another name. Uh, Guy Forger uh, is, is, is indeed very talented. I, uh, I certainly um, feel like another French guy, Henri Leconte, is, is another one who's very uh, talented. You know, Forger and Leconte, both left-handers, both uh, French players, and they're both great shot makers. Yes, I think they, they, they could have done better, you know, in, in, uh, at least in terms of... Uh, Better certainly in the in the in the majors, you know. And uh, Leconte did reach a final, and uh, but uh, you know they they both could have won, could have done more. I can't think of anyone else right now from the top of my head. Does anyone come to your mind? I mean, I haven't seen this guy, but I've read a lot about him. I've seen highlights. Jonas Svensson of Sweden. Would you put him in the same category? Uh, yeah, Svensson's a very very solid baseliner. I'm not sure hmm. if I would put him in the category of guys that should win a major yet. Because he's he's more of a he's more of a one surface player, wouldn't you say? Okay, so that brings to the next question I had planned, and I forgot fifteen minutes ago, and now we are back here. So if you look at the Grand Slam tournaments the last few years, uh, Becker winning in Australia, he was again it was never a surprise because he's one of the best players. Lendl was two time defending champion, so Lendl and Becker have won three times last three years in Australia. Uh, Wimbledon has been Becker and Edberg, and uh, U.S. Open has been. Last year was Sampras, before that was Becker and Villander. And now at French, we've had uh, Chang, Gomez and Courier. So what is it about a French Open 
And we don't know how Pete Sampras is going to look in the next few years, but he looks like a very solid player. People are picking him already to win more Grand Slams than one. Uh, Michael Chang, Gomez, and now Courier. So what is it the French that's happening that's not happening in the other? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, French is always open to more, um, you know, Roland Garros is always open to more uh, surging players or a player that makes, a, you know, his entry into the, into, the, into the grand stage, so to speak. And uh, there are many players who first reach that, uh, that elite level, so to speak, at the French or on clay courts before, uh, before you know, modifying their game, adding to their game and becoming successful on all surfaces. You know, Bill Bork, for example, uh, as big a legend as he is, at first he was mainly successful on clay courts. Uh, then he went on to win five Wimbledons in a row and nobody talked about that anymore. But he was, he was uh, you know, mainly a clay court specialist at early in his career. Same with Mats Willander, you know, and same with Ivan Lendl. He was, he was mostly successful on clay, these guys in their early years. So perhaps, you, you know, you become successful at first, you know, in the, in, the, in the surface that you're best at. Now, for example, you just mentioned the French and all that, but how about Pete Sampras, for example, winning the U.S. Open? You know, maybe, that, maybe he alone is the reverse example of that. In other words, he, you know, he, he wins on his favorite surface at first, in his favorite country, I guess, because that's his home country. Uh, but he, he kind of came out of nowhere and won. So, you, you know, you have to do well in your favorite surface first. And then didn't, didn't, became... didn't he beat Willander in 89 at the U.S. Open? Pete Sampras? I thought he upset Willander when Willander was a defending champion. But again, your point that's is right. valid. That's right. No, you are right. You are yeah, right. your so, point is valid, yeah. yeah. No, no, again, right. I, I, I mentioned Sampras in my question, but I thought Sampras, uh, whatever we've reading and whatever we've seen since been in the U.S. Open, he has the game. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if he has the game to win on clay. Uh, but again, you know, with all the young Americans playing clay final, I wouldn't be surprised if Sampras plays a clay final next year. Well, yeah, he, can, he, needs, he just needs to adapt his game. And, and, you know, and um, uh, Saki, before, before we end, there are some, maybe we should just look at some like few random notes from the tournament, from the two weeks, maybe? Sure, go ahead. Um, unless you had, the, did you have more comments about uh, the first week of the tournament or any other? No, any I other? think I started off by saying I'll talk about Bruguera, and I think that was one of my picks along with Agassi. And mm-hmm. I think he's been playing some solid tennis. And his match against Becker at Monte Carlo. I mean, I encourage anyone to go watch that match. The footage should be available somewhere. Uh, or at least read about that match. Because that match uh, made me believe that Bruguera this year will go all the way. But then against Omar Camporossi, you know, he got injured after winning the first two sets. Could not finish. So that was one, um, one aspect of the draw that didn't play out. I would have loved to see him mix it with Agassi or Edberg or Courier in the second week. I think he was playing some really good clay court tennis. Yes. Uh, that's, that's the only guy I thought deserves a mention. Again, Emilio Sanchez, solid as ever, but uh, I didn't really think he will go all the way. Bruguera, I thought, uh, from the Spanish players, I think he's someone to look forward to. I just like the way he hits his forehand. Yep. Uh, let me throw some, some things at you. And if you have any comments, uh, just stop me and say uh, these are just random notes that uh, that I've had uh, over the over the two weeks of French Open. Uh, there are 16 players seated, and you know there's been discussion about that. Some ATP events, such as uh, you know Nasdaq, uh, has 32 players seated, and yet here we are at the at a major event. In the majors, there are only 16 players seated. So there's some discussion about that. Should we have 32 players seated? 
or should we keep it at 16? Personally, I prefer the 16 play, 16 seeded player format. You know, I didn't then, know that. That's really good because that's what I when I saw the results of Mancini in Nasdaq, I think he had a buy. I didn't understand. He was ranked 23 or something. Why did he have a buy? This kind of helps clear that. Go ahead. <laughs> right, exactly. There you go. Oh, by the way, about Mancini, speaking of Mancini uh, uh, earlier, uh, I forgot to mention this, but Mancini, because you, you mentioned him going to the finals at the Italian Open and losing to Emilio Sanchez, you know that uh, he actually was not ranked high enough to get into the main draw of the Italian Open two months ago, and he asked for a wild card, and they didn't give it to him. He said, I won the tournament two years ago. Can't you make an exception? And they said, no, we're going to give our wild cards to the Italian players. How how does the wild cards work, Mert? I don't understand. How do the wild cards, is it just the tournament discretion? I I see the name uh, WC sometime against next to a player's name, but is it just anyone who's local gets a wild card? How does this work? Sakib, in the next ATP tournament, the tournament director or the tournament committee could decide to give the wild cards to Sakib Ali and Mert Artunga and we'd be playing in it. Okay, that's, that, that's, that's how it works, basically. But yeah, so so it's it's to the tournament's discretion. I'm, I mean, of course, I make I make an exaggerated point to uh, to get the point across. But yes, it's it's to their discretion. But yeah, they said they're going to give it to Italian players, so they didn't give Mancini one. He had to qualify. He qualified and went to the finals before losing to Emilio Sanchez. Another uh, point, you know, Goran Ivanišević is now working with Bob Brett, and. Uh, and also, speaking of Ivanisevic, Croatian War for Independence began just uh, six weeks ago. And I wonder how that's going to affect Goran, because he has high patriotic feelings. You know, that's a youngster with, who, has, uh, who, who plays with, uh, with his uh, feelings on his sleeve and uh, with his emotions on the sleeve. And, he, and he's a patriotic guy. They have to and, serve, uh, right? Some of, that's what is needed. Because I remember well, that, S- Slobodan Zivojinovic, I think he's making omelets, I last read. He was a chef in the army, and this man played a Wimbledon semifinal in '86 against Lendl. Oh wow! Okay, I did not know that. Well, I, I didn't know, but yes, I mean, that, if, listen, I don't know if if Goran will have to serve omelets, but I am sure it will mentally affect him. But also the fact that he's working with Bob Brett now, so that's a lot of changes for a youngster to go through. But we'll see. We'll see how it plays out in the next. Uh, yeah, Goran, and I think months. again, I have a story too. Goran has been very close to Becker because Becker and Slobodan, known as Bobo Zivojinovic, were friends, and Goran looked up to uh, Zivojinovic as an upcoming player. And I think they spent a lot of time together. So I've read that's what the Bob Brett connection is because Becker and Brett parted ways after Becker reached number one and won the Australian Open. A very weird ending. I still want to ask Becker why you go, you know, drop a coach who help you achieve so many goals in one week. But, yeah, I think that's where the connection is between Brett and Ivanisevic. They spent some time together with Becker practicing. That's what I've read, how this unfolded. Yeah. Yes. Next point, um, Aaron Krikstein wins another five-set marathon in the first round. You'll hardly hear anyone mention it, but he beats Eduardo Maso 7-5 in the fifth after saving two match points in the fifth set. And the guy is now 20-5 and five in five-set matches. It's yeah, but I, I wanted to ask, maybe we should do a Krikstein podcast sometime. How, how do you rate his forehand? I think it's a phenomenal forehand. doesn't get the same mileage as uh, Agassi or Lendl, but I think it's a connection between the Lendl and Agassi generations to me for forehand development. Well, he's one of the, he's one of the first uh, Nick Baltieri uh, products. You know, he also came out of the Nick Baltieri School of Tennis, and uh, he was there as a youngster when Jimmy Arias first reached the semifinals of the U.S. Open, I believe, back in the early 80s. And Jimmy Arias became a big name. Aaron Krikstein was already there at Nick Baltier Tennis Academy as a youngster. 
And uh, so, you know, he came from that same school of uh, big forehand, you know, run around the backhand and hit that big forehand type of school. Uh, but he's, he's, mentally, he's, he's mentally a rock. You know, if you're able to win that many five-set matches, some, many of them coming back, you know, some of them coming back from two sets down or saving match points. And he's 20 and five now in five-set matches. You know, and uh, so it'll be interesting to see. But yes, he's from the Nick uh, Voltaire School of Tennis. Another note, tidbit note for you, uh, Mats Willander loses second round uh, without much fanfare at all. And, uh, he, and again, going back to my earlier narrative, is he one of those guys who just hasn't been able to adapt his game to the new, to the newer, more powerful style of hitting? And, uh, you know, of course, I'm sure a lot of people have grand theories on that, or, or we could do a whole podcast on that. But, you know, Mats Willander following the 1988 season, it's, uh, you know, here we are. Three years later, and uh, he loses second round, Roland Gross without much fanfare. Um, another tidbit: record total crowd of 332,000 people for the two weeks at the French Open. It's a it's a new record. Uh, the, another thing is that this was the tournament's hundredth hundredth edi edition. They called it the centenary. You know, Roland Garros centenary. Uh, the French headline read that. And uh, the, it's actually the, the 90th played edition, but the first one was played in 1891, and um, a guy named H. Briggs won it, having played only three months of tennis before winning the inaugural French Open in 19, I mean French Internationals in 1891. He started playing tennis three months before that, according to history books. But yes, this was the 100th edition and 61st international version. Um, and the last note, tidbit note that I got here is um, Jacques Brunion's statue, which is, uh, he's, he's one of the four musketeers, famous four French musketeers. So his, his statue was erected between uh, Cour Centrale and Court Number One to complete this, the, the, the musketeers at that little space between those two courts. Now they have the statues of all four musketeers. Mm, very well said. And before we wrap this uh, review of the 91 French Open, we must admit and say that Andres Gomez wasn't here to defend his title. I don't know how often that has happened in the past, but the 1990 champion could not play the 91 edition. Yeah, but speaking of players who could not play, I mean, you know, there were a ton of injuries. You know, I, I, I can't remember if we went over this earlier in the hour or not, you know, but, we, you know, Mooster and Sampras were injured. Becker had injury problems coming in. He did pull out of the Italian Open a couple of weeks before French Open. Uh, let's see who else. Sergei, Sergei Bruguer retired during the match. Marcelo Filippini retired during his match. Novacek did, did the same. Lendl and Forger, we already said, withdrew from the Lendl Italian and Open earlier. And, and, uh, right, I'm sorry. Uh, Lendl and Svensson withdrew. Uh, Kevin Curran, Alex Antonich are also some names that with, who withdrew. So... You know, they're, 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 this was marred by injuries, this, uh, this tournament. And a lot of these withdrawals came on the eve of the tournament. Withdrawals, uh, yes. And then, and then there were a, a bunch of players. The draws opened up, but matches. it didn't really matter, I guess. <laughs> no, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it was never really talked about much. But yes, I mean, some top players withdrew and some important players, like I said, didn't get, couldn't finish their match. We talked about Jimmy Connors, too. So, yeah, let's go back and wrap the show. Uh, we are back. It's 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2020. So me and Mert are back after our 
Did 20. we beam back to? Did we beam back to two twenty? Twenty 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 now? Yeah, we so are. Think, are yeah, we, we back are. To today? Okay. <laughs> so I think we did a good job. Hopefully, there were not too many blunders. I made one. Uh, I said Becker reaching final of Rome. Then I corrected it because he ultimately reached the final of Rome in ninety four. How did I know that? <laughs> but uh, uh, it's all good, I guess. So please tune in and let us know how we did. I think uh, there was a lot of research. Mert actually watched a lot of matches. I did some reading and referred to the memory bank. So. Hopefully you enjoyed this show. It came out a little longer than we thought. But it's, of course, a Memorial Day weekend. French Open should have been playing right now. So we are giving something for the old school fans to listen. And new school fans are more than welcome to listen to uh, a podcast that does not include uh, the words Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I hope uh, people had trouble, people had fun listening to us. And, and also, I would like to... Uh, recommend uh, this this to other people too i i really had the you know i went back and watched some of these matches again uh i had some time this week so i watched them from beginning to end uh, about three or four matches and i did watch them at the time when they were played and i had certain you know narrative or memories stay in my mind but going back and watching today again you get a you get a whole new perspective or you catch things that you didn't catch back then so it was a very educational experience absolutely we'll be back with another episode uh, actually, a couple more episodes as uh, we'll try to release three episodes during the French Open. So anyone who's listening, thanks for joining and listening to the podcast. And big thank you to Mert for putting in so much work. This was so much fun. Very educational. I learned a lot and hopefully uh, listeners enjoyed it. Thank you, Sakib. I learned a lot listening to you. 